Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in beautiful, sunny Florida, where I am very, very excited to be bringing you this week's episode with uh, probably one of the most requested special guests. The man needs no introduction. He is a professional poker player with over $7 million in lifetime live tournament caches, He's also the author of 14 best-selling poker books and the author of uh, an interactive training site called PokerCoaching.com. You've got to check this interview out. I'm very excited to share it with you. It's my exclusive TPE interview with the great Jonathan Little. And here he is, Jonathan Little. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so... um, before we get into some hands, I know you have some really interesting hands that uh, you wanted to discuss. Um, let's talk just a little bit about, I mean, everybody knows about you and your uh, you know, incredible poker resume and all of your accomplishments and everything. Um, but let's talk a little bit about your, your general approach. So we've been kind of going back and forth on this podcast with, with different guests about whether we should be striving for, do you strive for game theory optimization while you're playing, or do you shoot for a more exploitative approach, or do you think that GTO is exploitative enough? Just kind of your general thoughts on game theory. I think you need to use a strategy that works best against your particular opponents, right? So if you're playing a very tough high-stakes tournament against the best players in the world, well, you probably want to be striving to play pretty close to GTO, but if you're playing against random players who have no clue what they're doing, well, playing GTO is going to leave a lot of money on the table. So I play in the manner that wins the most money, ideally. That makes a lot of sense. And how do you determine that? I mean, is it just a matter of sitting down at your table, trying to size up your opponents? Yeah, Give us some insight into how you would make a decision on what your correct strategy would be. Whenever you're playing, you want to either have an idea of what the general player pool does incorrectly, like say you're playing a random $200 tournament at your local casino, and you just know all the players in your games literally never bluff raise the river, well, that's going to change your strategy compared to if you're playing against world-class players or players you do not know. Um, Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, most of the games that I'm playing are relatively high-stakes games, so I very often don't know what my opponents are doing wrong. Or even if I have some idea, it may just be because of short-term variance. Well, well, let's say they just happen to have the nuts on the river three times in a row or something like that. So very often, if you don't know what your opponents do incorrectly, and you don't know what the player pool in general does incorrectly, you should just strive towards playing a GTO strategy. But you'll almost always have some idea of what your opponents do incorrectly. Like if someone just doesn't play a pot for an hour and a half in live poker, then all of a sudden they raise their range is probably tighter than normal, right? Or if they're playing every pot, their range is probably way wider than normal. And if even things as simple as that change, that means that you need to be playing a very different strategy 
compared to if you had no read at all on them. So I'm trying to figure out what people do wrong, and once you have a clear idea of what they do wrong, you know how to adjust away from a fundamentally sound approach to take advantage of whatever they do wrong. But if you don't know what they do wrong, then you don't really know where to adjust to, right? Sure. Now, in your experience, when you try to uh, exploit your opponent's mistakes, or in your words, figure out what they're doing wrong and then play accordingly, uh, how often or how what percentage of the time would you say your opponent figures out that you're trying to do that and then makes an adjustment uh, you know, in real time? Not a lot. <laughs> I, I, I think that most people just generally show up to play poker who have a default. They have a default strategy, and they stick with that default strategy. And I mean, they not be they may not be completely aware of what their default strategy is, but they they have one. Like for example, a lot of people just aren't bluff raising the river very often, and they're never going to start bluff raising the river. And that's okay. That's that's fine and good, right? It allows you to make good exploitative folds whenever you value that river thin-ish, and they raise it. So typically people are not adjusting, and the thing is the people who are usually capable of adjusting on the fly are usually the pretty strong opponents anyway, in which case I'm usually just trying to play a more GTO strategy against them to begin with, so there is no adjusting on my part to, to like adjust back from or to take advantage of. Right, okay, so it sounds like you're saying that uh, basically, I'm going to oversimplify here, but basically there there are two kinds of players, those who are really good and aware and, and pay a lot of attention, and th those players, their mistakes are hard to identify, so your default versus that player would just be to try to stick to what the computer says you should do. And then the other category of player is one that doesn't really make adjustments and just kind of says, well, this is how I play. And against that player, you try to identify what those mistakes are. And by definition, those mistakes are how they veer from what the game theory optimal strategy would be, correct? Right. So you want to figure out what how, how they are adjusting and then adjust appropriately. And you can use solvers to figure out how to adjust to their particular adjustments. Like, you know, if they're playing way too many hands preflop, you can use a solver to figure out the ideal strategy from that point, right? So it's not just, you know, only use this the solver to come up with one strategy and that's all it's good for. It's really good for figuring out how to exploit what people do incorrectly. So as a, as a pretty simple example, just to try to put this theoretical conversation into, uh, you know, something a little bit more concrete, uh, most solvers have determined that we should be raising about 50% of our buttons when folded to us against two random hands in the blinds. So if you happen to notice that one of your opponents is folding his big blind too often, then you would probably increase your raising percentage to something higher than 50, correct? Right, and then it's up to you to figure out how much higher than 50, because let's say the guy in the big blind plays only the top 5% of hands because he's a super nit, well, you can probably start raising 100% of hands. But if you know, instead of defending the correct amount, he defends a little bit less, then you can only widen your range a little bit more to like 52% or something like that. So it's up to you to figure out how much you want to adjust. Right. Great. So now let's take the uh, extreme opposite of that. Suppose you are on the button versus an opponent that you have literally never seen fold 
his big blind to a button raise. Um, what kind of adjustments might you make against a player with a, with a roughly 100% big blind defending range? That starts to depend on how they're going to play after the flop, right? Like, say they're going to defend 100% pre-flop, but then just check hold every time they miss on the flop. Well, that's actually a pretty good scenario for you on the button, right? Sure. So, so you would be really happy to take that spot with a very wide range. So the answer could be still wide in your range because you know that player is going to call way too wide pre-flop, which is a mistake, and then they're going to check fold way too often on the flop, which is another mistake. Alternatively, if you know they're going to be three-betting you every hand, and if you four-bet, they're literally never going to fold, well, now you probably just want to play a tighter range in general because you really don't want to be getting three-bet all that often, and um, you, know, you, just, you just know that you're going to beat these players by value-betting them to death. So it depends on what they're doing wrong, not just they play too many hands pre-flop. It's how do they play from that point going forward. Which is different than a, a very, very tight player, because if a very tight player sticks around, it's presumably with a good hand, and they're not folding anyways, right? So you're winning based purely off fold equity against the tight player, but against the overly loose player, you may still win mostly because of fold equity on the flop if they're too passive and weak, or you may win by just value betting a ton. So it really does depend on specifically what they do wrong, not just they play too many hands pre-flop. Great. So Jonathan, I want to change gears a little bit because you know you've been playing. You've been playing No Limit Hold'em tournaments for a very long time, uh, and you've had success over, uh, I would say, several eras. As, you know, <laughs> no Limit Hold'em eras last about three to five years, and you have uh, done well in, in many different of uh, these uh, kind of periods in, in the evolution of No Limit Hold'em tournaments. Uh, first question about that is, do you still enjoy it, or has it become... Uh, a job for you at this point when you sit down to play? I think if you do anything all the time, you'll probably get tired of it. So, I mean, there were certainly periods in my life where I was playing poker all day, every day. I mean, back in uh, one of the previous eras, uh, you could go to Vegas during the summer for the World Series of Poker, and there was literally a decent No Limit Olden tournament every single day. And that, that was great. You could go there for three and a half months and play the tournament every day. So I would do that. I'd go there for three and a half months in the summer, play a tournament every day, and if it went poorly, you're usually pretty tired of it by the end of it. And, I mean, I've had a few bad summers at the World Series, and after those periods, you usually don't want to be playing so much poker for a while, so you take a break, right? But now oh, yeah. my life is set up a little bit differently where I am usually home for about three weeks per month with my wife and two young sons, and um, when I'm home, I'm working on content for my students, and then I go and I travel and I play usually high buy-in and high volume tournament series where I can invest a lot of money in a short period of time, which will ideally give you a decent win rate for that week. And I'm, I'm happy to go play because if you take three weeks off of poker, you're ready to get back in there. Sure. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, it's similar to my setup where sometimes I'm traveling uh, you know, to do comedy and sometimes I'm traveling to play poker. Usually I try to schedule my comedy tour around the uh, poker schedule that I want to play, <laughs> so or vice versa. So, uh, you know, for example, right now I'm in South Florida, and there's not that much going on down here at the moment, tournament-wise, but at the Hard Rock, they're having a small stakes series called the Escalator Series, so I'm actually playing in these $150 to $250 buy-in tournaments uh, they're kind of like satellites because first place gets a buy-in into whatever the big WPT event 
that's coming up next month is going to be. Um, but it's also, you know, there's also a regular prize pool as well. They're just adding a seat uh, to that main event for each of these uh, little tournaments. Now I say little, but they're having three and four starting days for these $100, $200 tournaments. So I've actually been adjusting my play a lot in these events. You know, my normal buy-in is right around like the 1K to 2K range is the tournaments that I typically would play. Um, so this is obviously much smaller. And the adjustments that I'm making is basically my bluffing frequency is way lower than GTO against these opponents because I found out rather quickly that bluffing in Florida is just not a good strategy. <laughs> yeah, that's probably accurate. I mean, in most small stakes games, I think bluffing on the early rounds is probably not so good, but bluffing on the river may actually be really good against some people. And, right, um, because they're not holding out hope of improving their hand on the river. Right, and on the river, they look down and they have middle pair, and they're like, oh, well, middle pair is probably not good when my opponent pots it, so I'm going to fold. And... Uh, so it's interesting how I do definitely think you don't want to be bluffing in the early rounds because you're just putting money in poorly when you're bluffing, but it, it could actually be good if they're going to fold too often on the river. So consider it. Consider that. The problem is is that whenever that fails, it's very costly. <laughs> so Sure, yeah. The, the big river bluff is uh, a high-variance play. But, yeah, I mean, if I have a read that I don't think is that strong, then maybe that is uh, something I should be incorporating. I mean, You may have just made me a, f a few extra bucks here, Jonathan. Maybe. I mean, obviously the easy – easy adjustment just to play better cards than your opponents when they don't fold and then value that to death. So that's certainly the easy way to go about it. Yeah, that's been the approach I've been I've been trying so far. And yeah, I'm, I'm often surprised by how light I'm getting called, but uh, I, I'm getting less surprised as I see it over and over. <laughs> yeah, that's just normal. And that's why small stakes games are really profitable and why you can have a big win rate in the small stakes games. And, you know, a lot of people complain about the fact that, oh, they call me with nothing. How are you supposed to beat these players? Well, the answer is play better cards than them and then value bet them to death. Easy game. Yeah, no. Right, right, right. which, of course, no solver is going to tell you to play that way. Well, it, it would but... if you plugged in that uh, those specifications to your opponent's strategy, right? Like if you say they're going to check call you with all sorts of junk, it will tell you to value bet them. Right. So it's a matter of actually right. doing lots of work and going in there and node-locking specific strategies for your opponent, and it will spit out that you're supposed to not bluff and you're supposed to value bet a ton. Absolutely. This is really getting my juices flowing. So uh, without further ado, why don't we uh, talk about one of your hands? You said you've been playing some high-stakes tournaments. So uh, Well, these are from the World Series main event. So these are from back in um, whenever this, that was, July. So July of 2019. These are from a while back, but I, I remember them, and I thought they'd be fun. Yeah, so why don't you go through it, and uh, what we'll do is when it's your turn to make a decision, we'll talk about that decision before we uh, before we get there. So this is in the World Series of Poker main event. We are, you know, in the middle stages of the tournament. Well, maybe day day two or something like that. We're playing 1,500, 3,000 blinds, and we have 220,000 chips in the cutoff. So we have queen-jack offsuit, queen of clubs, jack of diamonds. Everyone folds around to me. And I'm going to be playing this hand. Queen Jack is certainly acceptable in the cutoff. And I'm going to raise. I make it 8,000, which is, what, 2.7 big blinds. I think making it more than a min raise is usually pretty nice because it just gives you a little bit more fold equity preflop. And if people call a lot and then check fold the flop a lot, you just win a little bit more money. So Agreed. I think particularly in the main event um, where you have players at such a wide range of skill levels, um, just kind of going a little bigger with your value hands is 
kind of a generally a good adjustment to make. So yeah, I might even go a little bigger um, than this. Your M is uh, what thirty? Yeah, it's thirty-ish. Um, we talk in terms of big blinds and M, just because some of our listeners uh, prefer M. And I, I actually prefer M myself, as uh, they're probably all laughing now as I say that because it's been an ongoing debate. <laughs> Either well, way, you're just comparing your, your chips to how much it would take to felt you, right? I'll tell you uh, one of my issues with the idea of M. There's nothing wrong with the metric, but I think a lot of people view it as how long can I blind out? <laughs> yeah, that's not the right way to look at it. <laughs> no, but, but you'd be shocked at how many people tell me, yeah, I can blind out for like 30 orbits. I'm good to go. I'm like, what do you mean you can blind out? We're certainly not going to sit here and blind out waiting for aces for 30 orbits. <laughs> and, and that's what they'll do. So there's nothing wrong with the metric, but what the metric entails, the way it was written up initially, however long ago that was, was this is how many orbits you can go before you blind out. And, right, uh, but that doesn't mean that you should, right? <laughs> no, but that's what a lot of people took from it. I see, and that probably causes the uh, wrong type of mindset um, if you're looking at it that way. But yeah, you could also say I can put in 70-some blinds before I blind out, but I guess people don't don't see their blinds in the same way as, as people look at M. I just think of M as the uh, pre-flop stack-to-pot ratio. Yeah. That's all it is. So that, that is all it is, and as long as you recognize that, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, all right, cool. All right, so, so anyway, we yeah. raised up to 8,000 small blind, a loose, aggressive kid calls. Okay, big blind mm -hmm. calls. They both have more chips than me, so we're playing 73-ish. Big blind's effective, 30 right. and effective. You, right, and so <laughs> they both have you covered. Um, let's try to range at least the small blind. So how loose was he? Like, what do you think would be the worst hand that he would make this uh, flat call with? So this is going to sound bad, but I typically don't put people in this scenario on any sort of very specific range. Okay. Because, like he could have jack seven suited or he could have only like the obviously good hands, right? Like, I don't know. So okay. if I had to like go through and wait every single hand, he's way more likely to have, you know, king queen suited than he is to have king two offsuit, right? Sure. But like I would say king two offsuit is very close to 0%, but if he shows up with like king five of diamonds, I wouldn't be shocked. Right, but you might be shocked if he showed up with pocket aces. Um, yeah, yeah, I would. But I mean, I, I still wouldn't put it past the guy. Right. You know, so what is the worst hand that he could have? I'm not, I'm not exactly sure because I would not be surprised if he shows up with a pretty bad hand here every once in a while. Okay. Because people like to splash around. Yeah, and, sure, especially I mean, when they feel like they have such a big stack. You know, main event's going well. I have chips. So why don't we just see what the flop brings? Yeah. Yeah, uh, and it, it's, it's tough because a lot of people want to be very, very precise with range analysis, yet – if you're just wrong at any point in time, it's going to screw up the whole hand. Right. And that's it's tough to be very, very precise with it. Because let's say we think he's going to play 7-6 suited by calling, but he never does. He only three bets it. Well, now that's just you know four combinations of hands that don't exist in his range that we are presuming are in his range. And there's no way for us to even know. Right. And if you multiply that mistake by every other hand that you're wrong about, then you really have – a, a very inaccurate estimate of your opponent's range, which, yeah, I think it's always hard to put people on specific hands. But, yeah, just kind of more trying to get a feel for uh, exactly how loose this player was because so far yeah. uh, all we know is he was laggy. Right, yeah, I, I don't remember because this was okay. from the World Series seven months mm -hmm. ago. But, I mean, let's presume he's playing a decent number of pots, right? Okay. So I'm not exactly sure if he's three betting a ton, calling a ton. 
But the nice thing about trying to just play a generally fundamentally sound strategy is it doesn't matter all that much what the opponents are doing. It matters some, you know, don't get me wrong, but it's we can really focus on just playing our hand in the most logical way, and that's going to work out at least decently well, no matter what the opponent's doing. Sure. Now, I know it was a while back, Jonathan, but do you remember whether you felt like this was a tough table, a decent table, a bad table? Kind of generally your thoughts on the table as a whole. They're all good tables at the World Series main event for the most part. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I, if I have a laggy kid to my left, that alone probably makes it a slightly worse than average table. Right. Because you don't really want loose, aggressive people on your left who are young. Because if you're young, presumably you got your money from playing poker. Right. And if you got a hold of $10,000 at least from playing poker, you probably have really like 100 k from playing poker or more, which means you're actually probably pretty good at poker. Right? Makes sense, yeah. So I'm not going to say this is a tough table necessarily, but if you have, well, let's say, three loose aggressive players on your left and they're all competent, that's a bad seat. Sure. In general. Yeah. Yeah, many times you can just get a bad seat at what's otherwise a good table, and then you kind of have to adjust accordingly. Right. Like if they put all the loose aggressive players on your right, then it's just a good seat. No table selection and seat selection in tournaments is a very important skill that a lot of people don't think about and they don't consider because let's say you are in a really bad seat and we know there's three hours left in the day. Just play kind of tight-ish pre-flop, right? Yeah. And don't, don't do anything silly. Out, make it through the day and then get a new seat draw. Yeah, avoid those spots while you can. Maybe yeah. lock it down a little bit. Just, you know, not too crazy, but yeah, you want to take it down uh, so that you're not putting yourself in spots against players that are likely to put you in spots. I remember this tournament I played at Borgata one time at a WPT there where we were on at the end of like day three or something like that out of a five-day tournament, and there were two or three hours left in the day. They redrew the tables because we were down to, I don't even know when they redrew it, but our table was incredibly tough. All the good players were there. Then every other table was incredibly soft. And I'm like, okay, we're just all going to sit here and you know trade blinds back and forth, obviously, but that's not what the other people were doing. They were in there blasting it, and you know three or four of the players went broke doing stupid things. Then they redrew the next day, and we all had good tables. So it's like, why would you ever just be blasting it off in this scenario for no reason at a table where none of us have much of an edge, whereas if we just hang out for a while, get a new table draw, it's going to be better, and then, then you're in good shape. Right. So. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, so a lot of it's thinking about the big picture and not just getting caught up in the moment, as it were. Right. Well, I mean, there's pro they were probably thinking the idea of, all right, I'm in a tough table. I need to take whatever edge I can get. Without thinking about in two hours, we're going to be at a soft table where we're going to have many more edges available. So we want to make sure we get to that stage. Yeah. Well, the more things that you think about that your opponents are not thinking about, the bigger your edge will be. And that's, uh, you know, kind of why, why we try to do this homework away from the table and think about these things. Like, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone make the point you just made on a podcast, but yeah, there's kind of a lot of equity in just kind of surviving this less than ideal table with the idea that the odds are you'll have a much better opportunity tomorrow if you can just get to tomorrow. Right. So, and if it's easy to get to tomorrow or easy to get to the redraw, then it's not so hard. Right. I mean, if, if you want to want to go to the real next level, I mean, there are times where you know the floor person's coming over to take someone from your table and move them to another table, right? Like early in a tournament where they're, they're balancing tables or starting a new table or whatnot. So maybe you play a little bit faster or a little bit slower to hit a specific person and make that person move, whether <laughs> whether it be you or someone else. Sure. Yeah, like, get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, if your table's like bad, if your table's bad, rush it. If your table's not bad, wait, you know, and then make somebody else move. 
So, I mean, that that's just good common sense. These are things you come up with if you've been in poker for many eras, as you say. Yeah. <laughs> Inevitably, <laughs> these things happen. Era. Yeah. Yeah. Every era you learn a live pro trick. Right. All right. So, anyway, anyway, anyway. Okay, so we raise... Yeah, so let's recap just because we've been chatting for a while here. Uh, folded to hero in the cutoff with 70-some blinds holding Queen Jack. And Jonathan, our hero, opens to about 8,000 and both blinds call. Cool. All right. Flop comes. 10, 9, 5, two clubs. We have Queen of Clubs, Jack of Diamonds. Okay. Small blind, laggy kid now leads for 7,000 into the 27,000 pot. They blindfold and now it's on us. Okay, so yeah, before you tell us what you did here, let me just do another quick aside because we've been talking a lot about having a leading range. Um, you know, for for the last few eras of poker, check to the razor has kind of been the default almost to where you can 99% of the time expect everybody to check to the razor on every flop. Um, I, I was reading this article, I forget what publication it was, but it's about the new computer that has solved or, or has come close to solving the uh, the correct strategy for multiplayer flops. Yeah, so this was another one, and uh, the name of it escapes me right now it's as well. It's Pluribus or something like That's that. That's it, Pluribus. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Pluribus says that we should have a pretty wide, not very wide, but a fairly wide leading range. Um, you know, like in this exact spot where you're the small blind and you weren't the preflop raiser, um, you know, Pluribus has a pretty wide leading out range. So first question, Jonathan, do you ever donk, as we call it, donk bet into the raiser when you're in the small blind? And uh, if so, what do you think a good uh, balanced range for doing so might be? So as far as I know, I could be very wrong about this, you typically want to be leading in spots where you have the range advantage. Just straight up in general, if you have the range advantage, if you run your range against your opponent's ranges, in this scenario, if you are in you know more than 33%, you are the favorite, right? So if you're right. the favorite, you want to be betting. And if you're not the favorite, you want to be checking. And it, it really kind of is as simple as that. As your advantage gets bigger and bigger, you can bet more and more frequently. Because you're if you, like, say the guy in the small blind knows he has 60% equity, then... He's just crushing us, right? There's nothing we can do about it. Like, let's say small blind somehow knows his range is specifically queen jack, pocket tens, pocket nines, and ten nine suited, right? Like, he's just demolishing us because he has all nuts or good draws. Obviously, we can't know that. But um, the, the real problem with the computers developing these leading strategies is that they're basically using a mixed strategy with almost every hand in their range. So, like, they're checking sometimes and they're betting sometimes. And the problem is that is really, really tough to implement. For a human. I mean, I, I know from talking to my students that one of the most difficult things they well, one of the reasons they do not succeed with a lot of other training programs is that they're they're telling them, all right, in this scenario you should lead with let's say your your Jack seven suited, which you only have ten percent of the time. We're losing leading with our Jack seven, I don't know, twenty eight percent of the time, let's say. Like how in the world are you supposed to figure that out as a human? Right, and, you're sitting there at the table. <laughs> is this the 28% of the 10% that I'm supposed to lead out? Right, yeah, that's just not – it's not of, possible for a human yeah, brain to do. Of, of this one specific hand in this right. exact specific scenario, it's just <laughs> yeah. not practical, right? But that is right. what some of the very high-level training courses out there try to get you to do, but it's literally impossible. So 
I am always trying to teach implementable strategies that are close enough to the game theory optimal strategy. So let's say in this scenario we know we're supposed to lead with a total of four combinations of hands, even though in reality the solver has it split up between you know, 0.25 combinations of a bunch of different hands. Just pick one of them and lead with it, right? So maybe that is just the Jack-7 suited that you have every once in a while. Um, not that I'm saying you should never have Jack-7 suited here. That's just a hypothetical example. Right. So anyway, in terms of a leading range, do I think small – do I think the small – do I think – does I think – my brain's not working for English today. Does the small blind have the range advantage here? Um, maybe. Maybe not. Certainly the 10-9 lines up really nicely with a small blind calling range if he has a lot of stuff like king-jack, queen-jack, jack-10, 10-9, 9-8. Right. So maybe he could be leading. I think if he is leading, he probably wants to be leading bigger here because this is a spot where it's pretty easy for any of us to have hands that have loads of equity. And if we have loads of equity, he's giving us a great price to call, which is not really ideal. Right. Again, he bets 7K into 27K, which is a very small bet. It's actually smaller than your opening raise. Yeah. So. I'm not a big fan of whatever he's doing here. If he is going to be leading, I think he just wants to lead big and then just keep betting big on the turn and betting big on the river. Because, like, imagine he bet 27 on the flop, 75 on the turn, and then jam the river. That's going to put me in a pretty bad spot with basically everything besides sets and two pairs. Sure. Whereas if he gets bet 7K and then, well, I, mean, I can just easily call with all sorts of stuff, and I'm, not, and I'm never really making much of a mistake. Now, when Unless, I see this in your shoes, uh, most of the time – I put my opponent I, – I can usually put them on a draw. Very few players are actually leading out with their sets, although I think if you're going to bet your draws, you should also bet your sets. Especially for this sizing, it just feels very unlikely that our opponent has a monster hand. He's making a tiny bet. Instead of checking to the razor, he's leading out for a small amount. And you know, I know that in theory there should be a lot of hands in that range, but in my experience of playing the main event – nine or ten times and all the other tournaments I've played, this usually turns out to be a a semi-bluff with something like a flush draw, probably 80 to 90% of the time. Has that been your experience as well? I don't know. And I'll, and I'll say that because I'm really not facing leads in this spot very often. And I, I just don't know the answer to the question. And whenever I don't know the answer to the question, I'm always looking more so at my hand and my range. It's like... You're looking at this spot from what does the player pool do in general, whereas I'm looking at it from I don't know what the player pool does in general. So all I can do is play my hand in the best way I can. In this scenario, what I'm thinking about immediately is am I getting the right odds to call? I mean, am, I, am I getting the right odds? Yeah. Am I getting the right odds to call? And the answer is obviously yes. Right? Of course. Yeah, we have an open-ended straight draw and a backdoor queen-high flush draw right. and two overcards to the board. So. Yeah, I think you have the odds to call a much bigger bet than 7,000, so surely you can call so seven, that reasonable. can't be a mistake. Yeah. Right. Next question becomes, is there a better line? And how can this go poorly for me? Like, if I raise and he re-raises, that's obviously terrible. Right. Right. So, I'm, so raising's already looking a little bit dicey because I'm already getting a really good price, and raising could go horribly wrong. So I'm probably not going to be raising here. Um, I mean, raising is nice if you can make him fold out draws or whatnot, but I can already tell you I'm going to call most flop bets and call most turn bets, pretty much no matter what comes, right? So there's really no way this goes horribly wrong by me calling because I get to very easily realize my equity because we're going to get to see the turn plus the river, and I know I'm not going to get blown off my hand if I just call. 
There was a great book um, Ed Miller and David Sklansky wrote years ago called No Limit Hold'em Theory and Practice. It's a book that I studied really, really hard. And they kind of made this exact point that you made about when you have a draw to the nuts, specifically a draw to the nuts, uh, you often, but not always, but often should consider uh, not semi-bluffing with it. So in this case, not raising with it. Uh, and the reason is what you just said. You have so much equity now, and because if you if you get a three bet, you're going to have to call, and your implied odds are much bigger if you keep the pot smaller now, and and your opponent makes a very strong second best hand. Uh, so kind of, I, I'm not explaining it as well as they do in that book, obviously, but kind of the general theory is the if you have a draw, the further away from the nuts generally more theoret theoretically you should be more inclined to bluff with uh those draws which are further from the nuts and also do has to do with uh, yeah it has to do with how much showdown value you have as well like right here queen jack actually does beat some draws right sure. like we, beat, we beat jack eight we beat eight seven we beat low flush draws right. obviously we lose to some draws too but this is a pretty reasonable draw and we don't want to screw this up like instead say we had i don't know six four parts Right? Like, that's a hand where I'm never calling. I'm either going to raise or fold. Because that hand has no showdown value, and it needs loads of fold equity in order to be able to profitably continue. So I'm I'm definitely going to raise with hands that are way junkier. And I'm just doing a lot of calling in this spot because we're getting good odds. and you're getting good odds, you need to stick around a lot. And I can already For tell sure. you, I don't even know what the turn's going to be, but I'm probably going to call too. <laughs> All right. So we call, and now the pot contains 41,000. And the effective stack is now down to 205,000. What's the turn? Turn is the eight of clubs, giving me the straight, but putting the flush out there. Okay, okay. and we have the queen of clubs. We do. All right. So now he bets 18,000 into the 41,000, and we have to figure out if we want to call or raise. Okay, so given the uh, description of our opponent, as being a, a laggish, laggy player, uh, and given that he made that small bet on the flop, which, as I mentioned, I think is usually a draw of some kind, and the most likely draw, I guess, in this spot would be, well, I guess there are plenty of straight draws he could have, um, but yeah, I would be a little concerned about the flush. We have the best possible straight on a board that has a lot of other straights. We can keep his bluffs in if we just call here. Uh, so that's one reason to call, right? Because if he's just totally, if he's just bluffing, he can keep bluffing and try to represent that flush. And we'll probably call most rivers if he bets again. The only downside to calling instead of raising might be that he probably has other hands in his range that would call. Uh, that we end up leaving some money on the table with our queen high straight, right? I mean, do you think you can get? Do you think you can get value from a worse straight? or from a hand like a set or uh, something like ace-10 with the ace of clubs. Like there are hands that might end up calling a raise here on the turn because they picked up equity. Well, slow down a bit. So what are the worst straights that make logical sense? So he probably doesn't play jack-7 preflop, probably. Right, yeah, even though we were talking about jack-7 theoretically, it's probably not a big part of his range, right? Right, um, so he probably doesn't have a whole lot of jack-7s. He could have 7-6, I suppose, but would he lead 7-6? I mean, tiny? Seems absurd to me, but maybe he would. But 
I would be heavily discounting any straights here. Okay. Yeah, because he in order to have a straight, he would have to have jack seven, or uh, as you say, seven six, which would it would be a very strange way for him to play seven six and maybe seven six of clubs. I mean, maybe seven six of hearts. That's reasonable. Right, but those are those are just two combinations, so we can't really put too much stock in that, right? Right. So I'm not thinking he has straights all that often. I'm thinking instead he has some flushes, which you know, like you said right off the bat, when people lead, they often have draws of some sort. Like a flush draw, right? Yeah. Um, so clearly I don't want to raise against flushes. He probably doesn't have a straight. He could have a hand like ace-10 with the ace of clubs. I mean, sure, that's fine. But he could also have ace-10 with the ace of ace of hearts, right? That he's right. just. I mean, this is one of these spots where, again, like what kind of range do we put this opponent on? I don't know. I don't know what the guy is doing, <laughs> right? He's, he's betting with something. So, again, how does this go horribly wrong? Well, if I raise and get re-raised, it's terrible. Right. If I call, I'm going to let him realize his equity with the ace of clubs or king of clubs, which you know is a little bit unfortunate, but it is what it is. Um, if he has a one pair hand like ace ten of hearts, he's probably just going to fold if I raise, right? Right. Those are kind of basically those are the hands we want to keep in by calling. Right. See if he wants to bet him again, or maybe even pay us off on the end if we bet the right amount. And it's tough because when this turn comes, in my mind, you should pretty much only be betting with. Like flush draws and flushes, if he's good, I think. Because I mean, like it's so easy for me to have a flush here or a straight here, right? Yeah. So essentially, whenever yeah. it's really easy for me to have a straight or a flush, and the guy's still betting, it implies he's betting with a very polarized range. So either flushes or flush draws, or maybe like some other random draws, like jack eight or something that was just continuing to bet for no good reason. Right, so when I mean, he makes this bet, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jonathan, but if he makes this 18,000 bet with a polarized range, whether that range is a bluff or a flush, we don't want to raise correct. either way. And I think that's especially true in tournaments that are typically very soft with good structures, like the World Series main events. Right. So Why? I'm more than happy to give up a little bit of value in all of these spots in exchange for just making sure I get to play these spots over and over and over again. As opposed to if I raise here to, let's say, 70K or 60K, and he calls, now I'm only going to have 140K left in my stack, and the pot's going to be big, right? So pot's sure. going to be like 180. So am I really jamming the river for value? I mean, it seems kind of optimistic when he could just be sitting there with a flush. Right, and a better flush. Even if another club comes, he could, have, he could still have that ace of clubs to beat us. Right. So, so this, is, this is why I think it's very important just to call, minimize the risk of going broke, minimize the risk of you know really value owning ourselves, and realize that whenever we call, we keep him in with all of his bluffs because very often he is going to be sitting here with some random bluff that's just drawing dead or nearly dead that that you would even think the guy could have, like yeah. it's case five of diamonds or something absurd. Yeah, you know. And and our listeners will tell you, Jonathan, that one of my many leaks is that I value own myself too much. So. <laughs> I think that's probably not so bad in cash games, but I do think it's pretty bad in tournaments. Right, right. Something I'm definitely working on, and uh, just hearing that reinforced by you, uh, yeah, that's pretty well, valuable to me. I think it's bad whenever the pot becomes very big, and you're playing against players who may not even kind of hero call off, right? It's different if you're playing against like players who are in there battling. And if they're in there battling and you have an aggressive dynamic, then sure, you can start going for thin value bets, but... I mean, I, I don't know what kind of dynamic I have with this guy, but I have no reason to think he's just going to stack off with 
810 on right. this board, right? Right, right. So anyway, yeah. I definitely like calling. Yeah, we can get outdrawn sometimes, but we keep them in with all of his bluffs. And I love keeping people in with all their bluffs when I know I'm not folding on the river. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, so yeah, I think once we talk through it, all signs definitely point to just calling here with our straight and our queen high flush draw. Okay. And so what's, what's, what happens on the uh, river? River is the seven of clubs. The board is now 10, nine, five, eight, seven with the 10, nine, eight, and seven of clubs on the board. Okay. Okay. And the pot is now up to 77,000 with 187 behind. Okay. And does he check or bet? He checks. Okay. So now this is a real uh, decision point here. Do I want to try to get value from some other hand like uh i don't know what would that hand be if we do go for a little value bet here with our flush can we get called by worse well so this is a cool spot because we have to ask what is worse because notice the jack of clubs and a six makes of a clubs. Straight, straight flush right so we're trying yeah. to get called by a five of clubs or worse <laughs> no i think that we'd be trying to get called by a straight or a set which I don't really know how how, my, how many calls we're going to get when there are so obviously four clubs on the board. Right. So this is an interesting spot where we have to figure out, is there any merit in value betting with the idea that we have a very clear idea of what we're going to do if we get raised? So if you right. know that this is just like an easy fold or an easy call if you get raised, either one, then I think value betting becomes very reasonable. But if you don't know what to do when you get raised, and you don't even know if the guy's going to be calling a river bet with a five of clubs, because realize I could obviously have the ace, king, queen, or jack here, right? Sure. Clubs. So we don't even know if the guy is going to value bet or about a call a value bet with a very marginal flush. Realize that you know maybe we give up a little bit of value in exchange for never being put in a tough spot, and in exchange for always having a 62 big blind stack at least going to the next hand. Okay, but let me push back just a little bit here about whether it would be a tough spot. So if we make a small value bet here on the river and get check raised, I think it is a pretty easy fold. I think uh, very few players in the main event, uh, or really anywhere, have that big check raise bluff on the river in their range. They're just going to be so worried that we have the straight flush, or at least the ace of clubs, that they, they won't check raise us very much as a bluff. So I think you can pretty well confidently fold if you do get check raised against pretty much all your opponents, unless, you know, it's some kind of crusher. Well, we have our opponent labeled as laggy kid. So, like, if there is a type of player who I'm going to be at least skeptical of if they raise me, it's going to be the laggy kids. <laughs> okay, fair enough, yeah. Right, I don't right. have weak type knit here i have laggy kid that that's a good reason to check actually if this was a much more straightforward player i think actually it's still probably just to check because if you're against a weak tight knit they could just he's be not, afraid of the jack or the six and they have he's the ace not gonna call kick. yeah he's not gonna call you with the ace right well no no i'm saying if he has the ace of clubs if i he, he might check the ace of clubs if he's a weak tight knit right right and then just check call and call okay yeah I so hear you. We're, yeah, we're we never get value from any of these guys Right. right. This is a spot where I think it's just a, probably a pretty easy check behind because it's hard to get value. And, you know, against the laggy kid, I'm not even necessarily thinking we should make a small bet. I think it might actually be a spot to go for a big bet to make it look like we have plenty of bluffs in our range. 
Right. I mean, normally when you're value betting thin, you do want to use a small bet size. But, I mean, depending on whatever kind of aggressive dynamic you have with your opponent, maybe we're supposed to bet like 100K on the river into the 77K pot. And then maybe the guy does secure calls with a set or two pair for no good reason, just besides he keeps trying to bluff him. The bigger your bet, the more polarized you are. And so he said, well, Jonathan either has a, a great flush or a straight flush, or he's bluffing me, and I can call him then with my bluff catchers, which would include hands like two pair. Two pair, straights, et cetera. Right, but I mean, right, I think right. all this is very optimistic. So seems like an easy check to me. Yeah. Well, it wasn't as easy for me, but now that we <laughs> talked through it, I agree that it is definitely a check. And so I'm assuming that's what you did? I did. Check, check. And he shows up with 8-7 of spades. So he did lead the flop with a junkie draw. He right. kept betting the turn on the 8 of clubs, which I thought, think is kind of weird. Yeah, because he made yeah. a pair. It's weird that he would bet that card. Well, I mean, I get the idea that he probably thinks he lacks showdown value, which is true. So he's continuing to bluff with it. The problem is I'm not going to fold anything on the turn that I'm calling with on the flop right. for the most part. Think about, like, what am I calling with on the flop? I mean, maybe I have pocket sevens or something, but I might even call call the turn pocket sevens. He's beating some of your range. Right, right. king-queen. But he probably yeah. doesn't think he can check call with the king, uh, with the a7. So if he doesn't think he can check call, he's basically taking the bottom end of his range and just using it as a bluff. But, you know, whatever. Using it as a bluff, right. right. And on the river, I think he should at least consider bluffing. He's probably right. thinking that he beats my pocket aces type hands, my ace-10 type hands, so maybe there's no point in bluffing at this point. But, um, so yeah, fun spot. We end up winning, and that's good. It's good to win hands. Yeah, of course it is. And your his river check uh, here, even though he has you know that junky two pair, it's pretty much a give up. Well, but it's yeah. checking with the idea that if it goes check check, he still wins a decent amount of the time. I guess he does, but 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 whenever I bet, he's going to hold presumably. Yeah, and, and it's okay know. to have hands like this in your checking range because if it goes check check, he beats aces and kings and queens and ace ten, right? Ace ten, right? Yeah, he does beat some hands that you might not turn into a bluff because you have a certain amount of showdown value yourself. Yeah, like right? I'm not bluffing ace, aces here ever. I'm just always checking it back, and then he wins. How so no, I'm, I'm definitely fine with the river check at this point. Right, right, right. Yeah. But it, it is a give up in theory that he is checking and then folding, but he still wins when it goes check check. And those are actually the hands you really like having in your checking range. Because, you know, when he goes check, check, you just win sometimes. Right. And so Jonathan, it's different if you just have a whole lot of, like, king high here. Like, they did have king three somehow with no club. That's a hand you would be way more inclined to bluff with because it has no showdown value whatsoever. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, it's really great to talk to you about hands because, you know, you obviously have such a well-thought-out approach and strategy and, you know, kind of gives us all – you know, a chance to kind of get inside of the mind of a professional player who has had success, as I said, over a number of years, uh, many eras of poker. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel like one thing I learned just to summarize here is that uh, sometimes you have a really strong hand, but it's still correct to play it passively. In general, in tournaments, you probably do want to shy towards the passive lines when the pot becomes very big because you don't necessarily want to risk your whole stack. And um, whenever you have a marginal hand in a big pot, that's not really where you want to be. So even though it could be slightly profitable to be betting in some of these spots, it's often not worth the risk of giving up future hands some percentage of the time. Right. So my first instinct, for example, was to raise the turn 
in this hand, but now you've pretty much convinced me that that's there's a logical flaw in my in my thinking there, and I think calling here is better. And just even though you made a straight with that card, uh, a lot of things can can work against you, and it will be hard to fold. Yeah, so. I mean, it's always nice to ask how how does this go poorly for me, and yeah. it goes poorly for you when the guy is a flush, right? It goes poorly for you when the guy folds out the eight seven that's drawing dead, right? Um, I mean, so you want to sidestep any things that could really, really ruin this hand. Against the weak, tight, straightforward players, you can be more inclined to value bet. And this is what happens in a lot of these smaller stakes games where it is fine to just go for a somewhat thin value. But as your opponents play better and better and a little bit trickier and trickier, you have to be a little bit more inclined to not value bet so thinly. Yeah, well, this is huge. A very eye-opening episode. Um, thank you for sharing one of your main event hands with us. Uh, what's coming up next for you? You have any big poker trips planned before the main event or before the World Series, rather? I have nothing planned. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, so I, I just finished up a book called Excelling at Tough No Limit Hold'em Games. So that is, I'm putting the finishing touches on that. That should be out during the World Series. I'm working on a big, giant new tournament course for my students. That's going to be out within a month or so. Actually, I do have a retreat for me and my employees, my for my, my company. We're going to Las Vegas for the Global Poker Awards and um, just to you know discuss business. So that's coming up in a few weeks. But that's it. I'm, I'm on a poker hiatus to some extent. My wife just started a new job that requires a decent commute. So she wanted me to stay home for a little bit with the kids, make sure her, that transition went well. And I'm doing my best to be a good husband and a good dad. And I have plenty of work to do at home because I've been traveling a ton recently, like November to uh, mid-February was just traveling a lot and you know it's good to have a little bit of balance so I'm going to be home for a while and I'm sure by May I'm going to be ready to go play for sure poker pro author teacher coach business owner world traveler husband and father any other job titles I left out <laughs> <sighs> no, I just grind all the time. I'm a grinder. Happy to do the work, and uh, I enjoy doing the work. Well, Jonathan Little, I cannot thank you enough for being on the uh, podcast here. You know, you were a very, very uh, highly requested and highly sought guest, so I uh, really, really appreciate your time today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Anytime you want me, I'm here. And Jonathan, before we go, uh, how can people find you if they want to get in touch? They can follow me on Twitter, at Jonathan Little. They can check out my site, PokerCoaching.com. And um, they can check out my YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash PokerCoaching. We have loads of content there for free. Well, thank you once again, Jonathan. We're definitely going to check out all your stuff. I'm already following you on Twitter, but I'm going to, I'm going to check out these other uh, avenues as well. So for Jonathan Little and for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening.
Love it, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun. <laughs>